All right. Um, any people in here outdoors type people? Like, I don't mean like mowing your grass. I mean like you like to go hiking or camping, that kind of stuff. Okay. Anybody in here ever been in the woods or in some area where there's timber and you found like a tick on you or maybe a spider and you brush it off, but even though you're now out of the timber and you're getting back in your car to go back home, you, ju- you swear something is crawling on you. You can still feel it. Have you ever had that or am I nuts? Okay, so... Um, I meant, am I, am I nuts because of that? I know that there are other reasons. Um, so I've had that before where something's crawling on me and then I know it's gone and I'll have somebody look in my hair and I'll have someone just check all over and I know there's nothing there, but I, there, I could swear there's something still crawling on me. Um, it's like a, that feeling that you just, you just can't get rid of that sensation. You know, um, you can't get it to go away. Well, as we've been looking through Acts, The Sanhedrin has had a similar situation, not with bugs, though, but they've got this guy named Jesus that they just can't get to go away. Everything that they do that they think is going to eliminate their problems that have arisen because of this man named Jesus, every time they try to do something else to put a stop to it, it just keeps coming back. Um, In fact, um, there are people, Jesus has now been put to death by the Sanhedrin, I mean, the Romans did it, but they were the ones who condemned him to death and convinced the Romans to do it. So they thought if they put him to death, he will be rid of him, will be done. And yet he's still influencing the world at this time through his disciples. And by this point, the Sanhedrin is getting really pretty sick and tired of this. And so we, we've seen them escalate their, their opposition to the cross and to to the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the gospel. It's going to continue to escalate, and today we hit a point where they have been fed up. Um, and so that's what we're going to look at today. If you will turn to um, Acts chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 21, 21b. Uh, so if, you're, if your text has a uh, paragraph division in there, we'll be picking up in the second part of verse 21. And if you could, if you're able to, could you stand? We'll honor God as we read his word. This is kind of a lengthy text. And I'm going to try to move through it. I don't want to lose the context, so I don't want to divide it up. So Acts chapter 5, verses 21b through 42. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. He's talking about the apostles that were arrested and put in prison. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, 
We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even find, you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we look at this text, um, there's a lot here that we could focus in on and discuss. Um, I just pray that you would help us to know how to be people who um, do not stand in opposition to you, that we are not deceived as the Jewish leaders were deceived and tempted into standing in opposition and fighting against you. I pray that we would be like the apostles who are convicted of um, the truth and we cannot keep silent because it needs to be shared. So help us to understand what's going on in this text and how we can Apply that to our lives today, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Before I get started, I need to clear something up. Um, I've told you guys before, if I ever say something that seems not quite right, um, and you go back to Scripture and you find something that's not quite in line with what I say, to let me know, and I'll be the first person to admit I was wrong. Well, my son took that literally, and told me last week that uh, I was re- referring to the text. We were, I was working through the sermon, and I made mention of something in the biblical culture at the time. And then when I brought in some application for us today, I referred to that as real life, as if the biblical account was not real. And so I told him I would make sure I cleared my name with this this week. So I do believe that the biblical account is real. 
Um, I didn't intend to indicate that if anybody else caught that and wondered why I was teaching something wrong. So this account is real, and this situation did really take place, and Peter and John and the other apostles who were on trial really did have to face a group of people who had their, f- their fate, their lives in their hands. Um, as we begin to look at the beginning of our text, we're going we're gonna to see there are two different ways that the groups of people involved in this respond to the gospel. The first is the Sanhedrin, and their response to the gospel is not one of, yes, let me follow after what you're teaching, but we're going to continue to complain about what you're, the way you're treating us, the way you're blaming us for all of this. And so we're, um, as we look at the first part of our text here from 21b to 32, um, they have arrested the apostles because they were healing people and they were driving out demons and they were proclaiming uh, the gospel to people in the name of Jesus. So they had them arrested because they had defied their orders. Their orders were don't speak in this name and they didn't listen. They defied those orders. And so they take them into custody. They put them in jail overnight and overnight an angel of the Lord comes in and frees them and says, go back out to the temple where the people are at and proclaim the gospel. And so they did. Now, when we pick up in our text, the council has gathered together to talk to them, put them on trial, and they're nowhere to be found. And so someone comes in and says they're back out and they're doing the exact same thing they were told not to do. And so they go to take them into custody. And Luke is, is clear to say that they did not have to use force. And I think that's important because, first of all, it shows that the Sanhedrin was somewhat fearful of the people. The, 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 idea, the concepts in the minds of the people the ideas that were going on in their heads, they knew something special was going on with this group of people that were called the apostles, that were followers of Jesus. And if the Sanhedrin and the temple guard had come to take them by force, they were fearful that the people were going to stone them. And so they, I think it's important as you're trying to figure out why they're thinking the way that they're thinking, they, they did understand that they were in a position of authority, but they were the masses could have taken it into their own, own hands and stoned them if they did something um, to harm the apostles in any way. I think it's also important to note that since Luke said that they didn't have to, they didn't have to use force, I think it's important to note here that the apostles have shown some, um, some great spiritual maturity. We're able to see that they went from, and, and remember, the death and the resurrection of Jesus was not that far back in history. It's a very relatively short time we're talking from the time of the death and resurrection to the time of Acts chapter 5. And so just even that short amount of time ago, the followers of Jesus would have been ready to do battle to resist arrest. When Jesus, when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus was being arrested, some of them actually did turn to violence to try to resist the arrest, to try to prevent him from being taken into custody. Peter took a sword and cut off the, the ear of the servant of the high priest. His name, that guy's got a name we know from history. His name was Malchus. 
So Peter was ready to take a sword out and violently, if necessary, aggressively take action in order to prevent Jesus from being arrested. And so this group of people who at one point would have been ready to be aggressive if necessary, now it's their life on the line and they, they are going to be taken into custody and put on trial by the same group of people who put Jesus on trial and yet instead of being aggressive and trying to resist that arrest, they went willingly. And I think that's a short amount of time. The Holy Spirit has been doing some amazing work in their life to bring them to the ability to uh, follow after Jesus' example to trust that God is going to take care of them, whether their life is preserved on earth or taken from them. Jesus is going to be their provider. So they trust in him. They follow after his example of willingly going. And I think by this point, they've probably realized, hey, this means one more opportunity to stand before the whole council of leadership in the, in the Jewish uh, culture, nation, and proclaim the gospel. Paul takes that same attitude when he is in captivity. He, he continues to proclaim the gospel and teach the people who are forced to guard him. And so, and we know that that had ripple effects that went through the palace, the palace guard and into the household of, of the king. So, so, Peter and John, the other apostles that are arrested, are showing uh, great maturity. Now, the Sanhedrin seems to have come to the realization that they are powerless against the gospel and this movement that is led by uh, the risen Christ and the, his, the Holy Spirit's work in the church. They're realizing they have, they have authority in title, but they're realizing that their authority is not enough. It's not, being, it's not being obeyed as they are trying, as they are commanding them to do things that are against what God is commanding them to do. They are not, they're not um, submitting to their authority. And when a person's authority is threatened or a person's authority is ignored, you know that things like jealousy, anger, sometimes rage, uh, sometimes aggression. Those things are things that begin to creep in and you begin to see that in somebody. And those are indications, as we see here, Luke specifically says that they were jealous of them. We, Luke specifically says that they were enraged after, after, their, after this time being on trial and they share the gospel and they again do not submit he tells us that they're enraged and so we're beginning to see indications that they're losing control they're no they're not they don't hold the power over over them or the people that they once did they're losing control and they're desperately trying to regain it and it's in interesting to me that the sanhedrin is so upset um i understand they're in a position of authority you might be upset if someone's not respecting that authority or not submitting to that authority I can, I can understand that. What I don't understand is why they're so upset because they tell Peter and John in our text, 32, or 21 to 32, they tell them that 
You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I don't understand why they're so upset because they keep saying it's your fault. Jesus' death is your fault because the, the Sanhedrin, this is the group that, first of all, found him guilty and then went to Pilate and pressured Pilate to put him to death. So first of all, they are at fault, and it's not that they don't remember what was going on, and if they were so right in their decision to have him put to death, then why are they so upset? The other thing is, this is also the group who, when Pilate wanted to release Jesus, because that was his custom at, at Passover, Pilate wanted to release Jesus because Pilate knew that he had no guilt in him. This is the group who stirred up the crowd to demand that Pilate put Jesus to death and release Barabbas instead. And it was that, that comes from Mark 15, by the way, and it was that stirring of the crowd that ended with the people, including the leaders, because it says that they all proclaimed. It was that stirring of the crowd that ended with the people accepting the responsibility for the blood of Jesus on their head and on the head of, heads of their children. That's Matthew 27. They said, Pilate says, I'm... I'm washing my hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. And they say in response, may his blood be on us and on our children. So I don't understand why they're so upset because they asked for it. They said, we will take responsibility for this man's death. And now when they're being blamed for his death, now they're all um, whining and complaining and angry because, because Peter and John are pointing out to them exactly what they did. Now, as Peter gives, it's all the apostles, or at least many of the apostles, but Peter is the one who speaks up. And as Peter gives a response to them, they say, we told you not to speak in his name, and now you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you, and you are intent on blaming us for his death. Peter responds, and Peter gives basically another gospel presentation. Um, there's one thing, though, that I want to point out in his presentation this time that kind of dawned on me this week that is in every one of his gospel presentations and acts so far, but it's something that the church, not our church necessarily, but the church in general uh, tends to not stress, and it's something that Peter has. So every one of his, at this point, I think he's preached the gospel, at least in the text, we know four times probably more than that. But the four times we have recorded in Acts up to this point, he's mentioned that Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. He was God's anointed who was the fulfillment of prophecy. We do that. He preached that Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins, and so he's put to death on the cross. We do that. He's proclaimed that Jesus came back to life and conquered death, so... We do that. But what we don't do as much that Peter has put in every one of these is that he has mentioned that Jesus, that God exalted him to his right hand. I'm not saying we never talk about that, but we don't stress it as much. And I don't think we do it on purpose. I think we, I think we as we are talking about the gospel, sharing the gospel with people, we get to the resurrection and that's a, vic that's a victory 
and we have victory in Christ because of that. And I think we, I think we celebrate in that victory and forget about the fact that he's exalted. Um, I think it's important that we stress that, though, not only because Peter stresses it, but I think it's important because in first century Jewish mindset, their understanding was that an advocate would stand to the right hand of a judge when somebody was on trial and they were facing judgment. And that advocate would then vouch for the person who was on trial. And Jesus, as our advocate, is standing at the right hand of the judge who will one day we will stand before. And when God, who knows all of our sin and knows all of the wickedness of our hearts, when God stands in judgment on us, Jesus is there to say, this one belongs to me. He's covered in my blood. And at that point, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant go and receive your reward. So I think it's important that we don't stop at the resurrection. We need to make sure people understand um, that for those who are in Christ, he is standing at the right hand of the Father for our benefit, for to be our advocate before a holy and righteous judge. Now, we... I've mentioned a number of times, we are going to find ourselves in situations like Peter and John, the other apostles, where we're either being, uh, we're put on trial for something, or we're, it could be as, it could be as minor as someone is just mocking us because of our faith and trying to smear our name. It could be as severe as someone takes our life for our faith. But we are going to, at some point, somehow, probably numerous times throughout our life, face some kind of opposition to us because we believe in Christ. And we're going to have to ask ourselves the same questions that Peter and John and the other apostles and other people throughout history have had to ask themselves. Do I compromise my relationship with Christ to save my life or, or to save, you know, to have comfort in life or to whatever? Or do I give my life for the sake of my relationship with Christ, trusting that his blood has covered me, and even if my earthly life is taken from me, that I will be, I will be declared righteous in him before God. Mark 8, 34 to 38, Jesus tells those who are the crowd that is around him, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So there's no middle ground. You either stand with Christ or you stand in opposition to him. There are places, there, scripture is, is filled. I put a list of scriptures in your, in your notes. Scripture is filled with <coughs> excuse me, texts that talk about not being afraid of what man can do to you, but trusting in, lo- in God. 
and I'm going to just, I'm going to sum up these because I don't want to take the time to read all of them, but Deuteronomy 31, 6. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Psalm 27, 1. <clears throat> the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or who should I be afraid of? Psalm 56, 4. In, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 118, 5 to 9, specifically verse 6 says, um, the Lord's on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 8 says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Proverbs 29, 5, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Isaiah 51, 12, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who's made like grass? Grass withers and fades away. Uh, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who's in heaven. Luke 12, 4 and 5. I tell you, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Romans eight thirty one. If God is for us, who can be against us? 1 Peter 3.14 If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled of those who, are, who oppose you. Revelation 2.10 Do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So there's a plethora of verses throughout Scripture that show us, and it's from beginning to end, that show us that one of the major messages that God is telling us is don't be afraid of what people can do to you. You stand with me and do not compromise, and I will take care of you. So the Sanhedrin has been... Um, They've chosen the other. They've chosen not to trust in the Lord and not to walk in the ways that the Lord has given, but to trust in man and to trust in their power and their authority and to be um, almost worshipped. They, they're feeding on the things of the flesh rather than walking with the Spirit. And so they, um, when, they're, when they get the gospel is presented to them, they continue to complain that they're being mistreated by the, by the apostles. As we get into the latter part of our text, in point two in your notes, we're going to see how the, the apostles respond, and they respond by rejoicing over how they're treated. And they're being mistreated, but they're rejoicing still. So in verses 33 to 42, Peter has just said to them, uh, basically, we're not gonna we're not gonna obey your your commands to disobey what God has commanded us to do. And so, uh, when they finish do it, when he finishes that, the the Sanhedrin is so angry. It says when they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. So they've reached a tipping point. They've it's been escalating and escalating, and their authority has been um, not not observed not obeyed or ignored and 
because they are so inwardly focused on themselves, so spiritually arrogant because they think they're so awesome and great. When that happens, they have hit a point where they're, they're done dealing with it and they're ready to just kill them. But there's a Pharisee in the council who was a wise person named Gamaliel, and he was respected by everybody. This is the Gamaliel that was um, the teacher of Paul. Paul was one of his disciples. His name was Saul at the time. Gamaliel sends the apostles out of the room, and I'm not going to run through everything he said, but he basically gives the council a history lesson. There have been a couple people that he mentions specifically there had been a number of movements that had where someone rose up, had a following, and people thought maybe this is the Messiah. There were a number of those in the recent history of Israel. But he mentions two specifically, a man named Thutis and a man named Judas. They were, um, at different times, they were people who rose up, got a following, and when, and, you know, they were, at that time, they were under Roman rule, and the Jewish nation, the people hated the Romans because they were under Roman rule. And so they got a, they got a following of people, and they tried to rise up and do something to release the bonds of the Roman government. And he says to them, both of these, both of these people, the, these movements fizzled out when they, when they, when their life was taken from them, it eventually fizzled out. And so he warns them, in this situation, if this is something from man, if they have devised this scheme to try to fool people and try to get a following, then it is going to fail, just like those two did. But if this is not from man, if, if this is actually true, he warns them of two things. He says, you will not be able to overpower them. And if you try, you will find yourself fighting against God. Now, I don't think from what I know, what we know from Scripture, I don't think that the Sanhedrin, most of the people in there, and I'm not saying every one of them, because there were some Pharisees who were followers of Jesus, but most of them, I don't think that they probably were convicted at that point that, you know, maybe this is right. Maybe we need to give them a chance to... to prove their message or I, I don't think they were convicted or repentant in any way they were trying to save their own face and so what they did was they it says they took their took his advice this is verse uh, 39 it says they took his advice and when they called the apostles back in they beat them and then they charged them again, do not speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. So I don't think they were repentant. They took his advice in order to prevent some kind of an uprising. But they still beat them. And they still warned them, you're not allowed to speak in his name anymore, before they let him go. Now, the apostles... We don't, we don't know exactly what the beating was like. Um, some translations say flogged. If, that was, if it was a flogging, uh, a very common flogging at the time was the 39 lashes or sometimes called 40 minus 1. Um, but 
they were beaten, they left there in severe pain, probably bloodied. And yet the only thing that comes out of their mouth is not a complaint, not a this isn't fair, not a God, why did you let this happen? What comes out of their mouth is praise and worship because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ who suffered and died for them. They praised because they were considered worthy of the disgrace of suffering for Christ. I read uh, stuff from Voice of the Martyrs, um, and then uh, there's another organization that has some similar things um, that I read, and those are magazines, or you can read it online, and they, they're articles that tell of real-life situations. They're not stories that are made up to encourage you. They're, they're accounting, uh, accountings of what's going on around the world, of people who are Christians who live in places that are anti-Christianity to the point of aggression and violence. Many of these people either know people who have been persecuted for their faith or they themselves have been persecuted in some way for their faith. These are people who have scars and disfigured bodies to tell the tale of what goes on in their communities. There are people who walk out the door of their house and they never know if they're going to return home alive. There are people who watch their kids leave the house to go to school or, or to go to work or do whatever they're, they're leaving to do and they never know if their children are going to come home. And it's simply because they follow Jesus. Now, when Voice of the Martyrs workers go into those countries and they're there to pray with people and encourage them and give them supplies that they might need, um, when they go in and they talk with them and they say, listen, we have people around the world that are praying for you and they want to know, what can we pray for you? How can we, how can we partner with you in prayer? They never... I've never heard in anything that I've read, any interviews I've ever heard from people who are Voice of the Martyrs workers, I've never once heard them say anything different. They never ask for, pray that the persecution will stop. They never ask, pray that God will bring some peace so that we don't have to deal with this anymore. They never ask, pray that we would have an opportunity to leave this country and get into a country where it's less violent and less, less hostile toward Christians. They never ask for those kinds of things. Their prayer is always the same. Please ask the believers around the world to, to pray that we would be able to endure the suffering and the persecution without compromise. They, they never ask to be removed. They ask for their basically faithfulness and their witness to be bold to those who are persecuting them. They want to be found faithful 
no matter what the cost, and that their faithfulness would bear witness to Jesus as Messiah. This was the mindset of the apostles, which is why they left and they were able to rejoice and be excited that they were counted worthy to suffer. That's why Paul says in Philippians, I want to know Christ and I want to know his sufferings. That is a common mindset in the minds of believers. Now, I don't know about you. I don't, I don't, my mindset is not like that. I don't wake up in the morning and I don't go through my day thinking, man, I would love to be counted worthy to suffer. I'm kind of a baby like that. I'd rather have a comfortable life. But my mindset has to change. My mindset has to be one of like the apostles or one of like Paul's or one of like these believers around the world that are, that are being persecuted every day. My mindset needs to be, today could be the last day of my life because I may have to lay down my life for Christ. I, we, we suffer some persecution in our country today, but a lot of it is more passive-aggressive at this point. It's not so much aggression or violence like it is in other places in the world. We see examples of that here and there. But most of the, most of the opposition to the gospel and persecution that we face in our country today is more passive-aggressive stuff. It might be, you know, purposefully isolating a person or a group of people. It might be uh, they're trying to pass laws that handcuff the church so that we're not able to proclaim the gospel without getting into trouble. It might be things like that. But, and this is just my opinion, but I fully believe that there will come a time when that type of persecution, the violent aggression, will eventually creep into our culture and our country. And we are going to need the prayers of the people around the world to pray for us to endure through the persecution with faithfulness and not with no compromise. And I want to have a mindset like the apostles, that if I have to suffer for the gospel, that I will rejoice in that instead of being a complainer like I like to be. I think we need to get to that point before we're faced with persecution so that when the persecution comes, when the pressure is on, we don't cave, but we will already have resolved that this is my Lord and I am not going to compromise. I would rather lose my life than deny my Lord. And just think, and I mentioned this last week or the week before, but I can't help, as I read through these things, I cannot help but think that Peter had to go back in his mind to the night of the arrest and leading up to the, to the crucifixion when he was given three opportunities to claim Christ and he feared man and he denied Christ three times. What a change, huh? Now he's standing before a group of people who have his, his life in their hands and they have the power to go back to the, gov the Roman governor who's over them and say, these, man de these men deserve death. And Peter is not going to compromise. 
And as we discussed in the text from last week, the last verse in our text today says, after they were released and they were worshiping and rejoicing because they're kind of worthy of suffering for Christ's name, verse 42 says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that, Christ is, that the Christ is Jesus. It was every day. They didn't say, let's figure out days that we can do this when the council's not around. It was every single day. And it was not in, it was not in hiding they did do it from house to house, so there were different settings. The house to house was probably more personal uh, discussion with people, with maybe individuals or a family. But it also says that they did every day they were preaching and teaching in the temple. So they went right back to the thing that they had been commanded more than once to stop doing, and they did not compromise what God has called them to do. They went right back to where the people are at, and they began teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. We stated at the beginning of the sermon that the Sanhedrin could not, they just couldn't get rid of Jesus. Um, obviously, they needed a different response to the gospel. They had to deal with him through his followers even after they put him to death. Well, the apostles also have something that they just can't get rid of. They can't get it to go away. Because Satan is never going to stop. He's proven he will, he will come at them, and he will come at them, and he will come at them. And as we read through the rest of Acts, we're going to see more attempts by Satan to destroy the church or to destroy its leaders. He does not back down church throughout the centuries has faced persecution and it's still facing it today and eventually if I if I'm right we will begin to face it in the same way that they have faced it throughout history but if we are in Christ then we can rejoice in those we, we can we can re rejoice in those for God did not in those persecutions because God did will give us grace to suffer for him in a way that glorifies him and is for our good. God does not do anything that is that is outside of those two parameters. Everything he does is for his own glory and everything he does is for the good of those who love him. That's a promise in scripture for all things work out for the good of those who love God who are in Christ Jesus. And so, if we're in Christ, we can rejoice in our sufferings and in our persecutions because God will give us the grace to suffer for him and suffer well for his glory. And if we are faithful, even to the point of death, which is that Revelation uh, text that we read, Revelation 2.10, Jesus says to the church, Do not um, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. If we are faithful, even to the point of death, we will stand before God who will see that we're covered by the blood of Christ. No matter how vile our sin is, we will, he will see that we're covered by the blood of Christ and from his atoning sacrifice, and he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, we, we know that we are not worthy of your grace. We're not worthy of your salvation. 
We're not worthy of being counted righteous. Um, it is only because of Christ's sacrifice. And because of his sacrifice, we can know for certain that we're saved, and we can know that we walk with him um, as he is our Lord and he guides and directs our life. And John 10 tells us that no, no one, nothing can snatch us out of your hands. And so we are grateful for that, Lord, and I pray that you remind us of those promises that we see in Scripture, the promises that tell us that everything that we might go through in life, whether it's pleasant or not, is for your glory and for our good. So I pray, God, that you would put a resolve in our heart and our mind that we are not going to compromise, that no matter what we face, mild persecution or severe, even if we have to uh, stare at our own death that is approaching, let us never deny you, never compromise our faith in you, never back down, but be willing to stand firm in faithfulness and say, I stand with Christ no matter what. Help us to have endurance in this life so that we can run the race and be victorious at the end because of Christ. And thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us and teaches us and guides and directs us and counsels us so that we don't have to go through life alone trying to do this. And thank you for the church so we don't have to go through life alone, but we have people who are supporting us and counseling us and encouraging us and praying for us. Only let us not compromise in this life, but be pleasing to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.